Well, hello and welcome back to Failure Beast Theater, your podcast for discussions of films that maybe aren't classics, but might still be worth your time. Joining me, as always, is Catherine, my sister, and I am your amiable co-host, Tim. And we finish up our discussion of the Fear Street trilogy this week with Fear Street Part 3, colon, 1666. We're going pilgrim style, y'all. That's where horror's gone. Somebody saw the the Vivich, and they said, I want some of that action. I want it. Some of that hot Vivich action. They're like, but we're not going to have a goat. We're going to have a pig. Much more intense. Much more symbolic. That's right. Really meaningful. (laughs) It's a lot of symbology going on in these. Oh, yeah. Symbolism. Oh, yeah. Uh, It's deep, complicated here in this Fear Street trilogy conclusion. You know what we're doing with these movies here. (laughs) This is the last of the Fear Street uh, trilogy triumvirate if you will, uh, of films that have attempted to juice the slasher genre, bring it back to the big budget heyday of the late 1980s, early 1990s, and succeed in some ways and in other ways uh, sort of, you know, don't. But this is the film that we've been building towards. Part one and part two, the narrative gaps, the issues with some of the um, you know, storytelling, supposedly they're all going to get wrapped up here. And if you look at the Rotten Tomato reviews, a lot of people were satisfied with what Lee Janiak and her crew decided to do with Fear Street 3. Of course, the question is, are we fine with it? Did we enjoy Fear Street Part 3, 1666? The fabled conclusion, the delving into the history of Shadyside and Sunnyvale, the the veritable fertile ground of the past where we can finally know the truth of Sarah Fear's betrayal and witchery. Um, so I guess before we get into spoiler, spoiler territory, the question is, where you at? What do you think um, about Fear Street Part 3? And then I guess the whole thing. I I did not like these movies in the end. There were things mm-hmm. I liked about them. I mean, just sure. spoiler alert for the end of this. Like, I'm not going to have a better opinion than the other two movies. <laughs> um, you didn't just immediately turn around and be like, ah, all my questions are answered. All of the issues I had are now gone. That's, that's I, think, I think this is the one I struggled with the most. Um, and of course we talked a little bit about the ratings for this movie, which, which I guess we'll get to, but, um, for me, this was the worst of the three. The Uh, the top critics on Rotten Tomatoes disagree with you, but I'm, I'm fine with that because I I have a theory on, on why they might disagree. And that is because anyone who holds out for that many movies is already compromising their standards in some way. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, at this point, you just need to justify the six hours of your life that you've spent watching these things, right? Yeah. So, and and I think that you start to tolerate these characters in these settings and these situations after repeated exposure. And for me, this I just don't like these kinds of horror movies. I actually didn't like The Witch. <gasps> I know, I know I'm a bad person. Audible gas. I did like Midsummer, 
I really enjoyed mm-hmm. that, you know, which had its own <laughs> mm-hmm. kind of vibes of that I think this was trying to borrow from a little bit, if you yeah, if you get sure. me. Yeah. Um so I I I don't not like some of it, but for the most part I just don't like these old timey horror films. I just I think it's a bad idea. I I don't think we should be trying to tell pilgrim stories. <laughs> like this but, i just don't i just think pilgrims. this was a bad idea <laughs> yeah um so i guess we can lay out the basics of the story for those who might not have have seen it um so our, our last installment was focused on camp nightwing right and it was an obvious homage to the early 80s slasher films more specifically friday the 13th obviously you know, no bones about it that's what they were going for and they mostly get there again i, I think as a narrative 78 is the strongest independent film. It's the one I think you could hand to somebody. And, you know, if they just ignored the little tags on the end that tie it to the larger thing, that would probably be the most satisfying just film because it tells a complete story beginning, middle, and end. Um, and even with the tags on the front and the end, since they focus on Ziggy as a character, it you know, kind of works. But, um, but this one is... fully dependent on the other films. If you haven't seen the other ones, this one is bewildering. It makes no sense. Um, and, and that's fine. Again, if you're too deep, two movies deep into this thing, that's whatever. But so at the end of the last film, however, we saw Dina, who is ostensibly our, our main character of the series of the entire trilogy. Um, we see her go to put the hand back uh, with the witch. And when she joins the hand back with Sarah fear, she is, pulled back into time and is now living the last few days of Sarah fears life. Uh, we're, and, and so this is where we're going to finally get the answers about what really happened to set off the legends that have now defined shady side and Sunnydale. That is the, the thrust of this film with a, a little you know twist at the end, as you know, we've probably come to expect from the series at this point. But so, you know, Basically, what we get here is a chance for the filmmakers to use all of the actors that we've seen in the various roles, uh, even the 1970s roles. Those characters come back um, and we see them all in a new context, namely the Pilgrim context. Right. Um, and. You know, my issue with this is just that we've seen all these things before, everything that happens in the 1666 portion of this is either cribbed exactly from the crucible, like exactly, or, you know, other, you know, pilgrim era horror that we've seen like the witch. And that's fine. That's what all of these movies are doing. But this also touches upon something that, I mean, you know, the crucible is taught in, most high school classrooms, right? Like the story is known. The, the, the entire idea of the pilgrims who persecuted witches in their midst when things turned bad, right? Oh, so the well went sour. The witches did it. You know, like this is, we've just seen this so many times and it's fine. Cause this is, I mean, that's the other part of this that I realized as I, as I was watching is like, you know, this is RL Stein's, like very uncomplicated backstory for what fear street is 
right? Like this is him saying, okay, well, I have this street where I want a bunch of weird shit to happen. What's the justification for that? Oh, there's a witch who was persecuted back in the old witch trial days, even though this is supposed to be like what Ohio, like did yeah. Ohio even exist then? Um, you know, was there even a, you know, a pilgrim settlement in what we would call modern day Ohio? I don't know. And maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe it's Connecticut or some shit. Who cares? It doesn't matter. Anyway. Um, it's, it's just, it's, it's very tropey. Like it is the tropiest tropey, tropey thing that you could ever trope. Like, it's, I guess it's, that would be fine if it were just done with a bit more fun. The other two movies felt like fun. And this was mm. the first one in the, the set that I felt wasn't fun. Yes, this one attempts to turn serious because it wants you to take Sarah Fear's betrayal. I mean, that's this what we're going to This one has a message. Seriously, yeah. Like, it's, it's, it's paralleling with 94 in some significant ways um, and, and has a lot to say about the mistreatment of women at this time frame, which is, again, well-documented. Doesn't mean it can't be discussed. It certainly should be. I don't know if this is the venue for it, but you know, we, we just have a lot of callbacks, right? The, the George Lucas poetry of filmmaking is, <laughs> is on full display here. And some of it works. Um, we talked about it a little bit last time, but my main thing is I don't know why they're doing the Pilgrim accents that they just should have not done that. It's a terrible idea to do that. Nobody nails it. Nobody nails it. They're all bad. Um, you know, we've all seen those Wired videos with that lovely uh, accent coach who, who mm -hmm. talks about all the wonderful dialogue. I forget his name. Um, yeah, I love that guy. But we've all seen him because they have like 40 million views apiece. Mm -hmm. um, and and I would love to get a take from from someone like him on these these accents because they're, to me, it's worse than if they had just done no accents at all. Definitely. I wish they had done just no accents because and the other th the reason is, I mean, we're shown multiple times that this is Dina filtering these events like she is not Sarah Fear. She is is not a reincarnation of her. She is not reliving past memories like nothing of that. Yeah, she's, she's inhabiting being, her. She's inhabiting her. So she's viewing the world through her, but still retaining her Dina perception. So there is no reason why the film couldn't justify them having just regular flat you know, American accents. Um, you know, there's a couple of shalls in the script, like I shall love thee, like that kind of stuff. And it's like, a pilgrims didn't even really talk like that. Um, and B it's completely unnecessary to get this across. But again, it's, it's what you might expect if, you know, you haven't watched a lot of movies like this, like, Oh, this is old timey, right? Like, it just it feels very artificial and forced and unnecessary. But there's a little bit of a, a twist at the end. Uh, the 1666 component of this film is really only about an hour of it. Um, and then the film sort of jumps to a much more you know sort of logical place to find its ending. Um, but again, we're, we're basically anthologizing here. All of the, the actors and Characters that we've seen before are revisited in their 1666 version. So we have pretty much a direct analog for every character that we've seen in the films so far. And I really didn't Obviously, mind Dina, that. I mean, that's a... No, it's you fine. Know, 
trick as old as the Wizard of Oz and kind mm-hmm. of love it. Um, but I, I still don't feel any sort of connection to any of these characters and I don't like any of them. Yes. The film and the film at this point is moving too quickly. We now have far too much exposition to get through. Yeah. Um, Cause that's pretty much all that 1666 is. It's, it's explanation. And some of it is dire is it, it's desperately needed. Um, because there are a lot of things that have happened in the last two films that are just question marks, you know, hinted at in you know, fleshy, flashy things that have been shown to us in the, the blink of an eye. And now we're starting to see sort of how all those things relate, which is fine. Um, but ultimately, you know, the question is, can the film sustain itself while it now explains everything that it's been putting off for the last four hours? And the answer is, Kinda? Sorta? I guess? Um, but again, this, this explanation, if you've seen movies before and you have thoughts, most of what you're about to discover is, is pretty obvious. Because it was written to be an obvious backstory. Or at least I get that impression. Um, so any other sort of like initial thoughts before we move into El Spoilerino's? I don't think so. All right. Well, let's let's jump in from this point on. If you haven't seen Fear Street Part Three, don't sixteen sixty six, and and you've watched the other ones and you have an interest, go ahead and check it out. If not, I don't think anything that we're going to tell you is going to insist that you see this. Um, it does have moments that are okay, much like in. Honestly, in overall quality, this one felt more like the first one to me in that it's pretty scattershot, mostly okay, watchable enough with two or three good moments that could be enough if you're sort of like a desperate horror fan, which most horror fans are desperate. So, <laughs> um, so you know, there you go. All right. So, so spoiler territory, 1666 opens with a brief recap where we're just shown the barest bit of information to get us back to, you know, what we need, which is this is the past. Dina is Sarah fear. Now we're going to find out what happened to Sarah fear. So in the series so far, we've been told that Sarah fear was a witch. She was hanged for being a witch by the members of the town. At the time, her hand was separated from her body in some sort of ritual. And that is part of her hanging right before her hanging. She cursed the town for all eternity which is why all of these terrible things happen to uh, shady ciders. Um, so, so that's what we've been told. Obviously, if that was all there was to the story, then we would not be seeing this. So right off the bat, most people I think are going to intuit that that is not true. Then we have some really obvious things going on with like names to give us an indication of what might actually be going on. Uh, so Sarah's name is Fear. She is the fear in Fear Street. But was she truly to be afraid? Maybe not. Um, and then, of course, the sheriff and the mayor of Sunnyvale are the good families. Maybe the good families not so good, right? Like really obvious stuff that, again, if you've seen movies and you've read books, these are not like mind-blowing I, I'm not even sure you have to have seen movies or read books. <laughs> 
You could have just hurts, picked up on context. Yeah, I mean, this movie's not hiding anything. But if anything, that's my core frustration is that this backstory that they've touted as being this huge mystery is not hugely mysterious. Uh, nor is it especially surprising in how things go down. Um, but the way we're shown, uh, you know, we sort of come in with Dina as Sarah Fear. She's waking up to this new world. Uh, her brother is there, of course, and they're manning a farm. Uh, we do see their father for the first time. Um, well, it's supposed to be Sarah Fear's father, but presumably this would be like, you know, if this is the touchstone, this would also be Dina's father in the present day. But it almost makes me wonder if that character didn't exist in a previous cut of the first film that we didn't see Sarah's father at some, or Dina's father at some point. And then they were just removed from the film, uh, which not surprised me, but you know, it's a little weird, uh, but we see an actor here playing the father. Um, they're helping a pig give birth. Like it's, just, it's, you know, it's pilgrim times, man. There's hay, there's poop. It is very ye olden times. Yeah, I mean, people it's in white collars. Yeah. You know, oh, the costumes the festival. Are, yeah. are things that you would buy to go to the Renaissance festival. Um, well, and the costumes were all over the place. Yeah. Some people are dressed, you know, in the, these sort of loose tattered clothing that you would expect of the era. Some people are dressed hyper formally. Some people are weird places in between. And just so many different styles and, Time periods and just very confusing. So the costumes in this also bothered me. Just, I don't know, if you're going to have a movie that's any kind of period piece, even if you're not taking it seriously, you have the budget to like look up some fashion plates from the years that you're, you're basing this off of. I know that you do. <laughs> um, nah. And this just kind of felt like a, a bunch of, of shots in the dark, just like, well, this looks pilgrimy enough. It'll work. Yeah, you know, it's kind of it's just a loose fitting skirt with some pleats in it. That's fine. You know. Vests, a lot of vests. As many as we can come across. Yes. Um. So the main thing that the the opening, you know, is kind of building towards is the the, the tichiba dancing in the moonlight from the crucible. All of the kids are. They have this little phrase they whisper to each other that, you know, is to something like the moon is high and high enough to see through the tree. I don't remember. It doesn't matter. But basically, they have this little phrase they whisper to unite them all together to go out into the woods and, you know, be bad. So they go see the witch who's played by the nurse character, Ruby, um, Ruby Lane's mom, as introduced in the second film. And uh, they get some some drug berries, I guess. Some, some fermented berries that are like get them a little bit high, you know, like that kind of thing, because they're, they're kids who want to get high. I eat it the purple berries, <laughs> and then they they go out of the woods. They dance. Uh, they do have an altercation with. I was trying to. I guess it was Sam's boyfriend from the first film. I think that's who that that guy was, in a bad wig and a, and a you know scruffy beard. Uh. And he comes on to them and basically it's all leaning towards that, that Sarah had a, a lesbian relationship with the preacher's daughter, right? Not dissimilar from Dina and, and Sam's relationship in the future. So we're getting a nice, you know, poetic rhyming parallel there. Very beautifully done. Mm. 
And, and, you know, so they're, they're out in the woods, they're disinhibited and, and they decide to finally act upon, you know, their feelings, but they're observed by someone lurking in the woods. And, you know, so, you know, this is, this is entirely plausible, right? It would make sense that, uh, you know, the witches who were cast out in these societies generally were people who didn't follow societal norms, right? They might have been women who lived alone or lived with another woman. Um, so all of this is is fine, right? Nothing, none of this is wrong, but it's not interesting because we've seen it many times. Mm-hmm. And and that was my my kind of big issue with it. It's not badly done, right? It's not poorly executed, but it is most definitely like, well, okay. Yes. Yes, that is definitely a thing. So um, that was kind of my issue with the whole sort of first third of that section is just we're building to things that are not especially surprising. And if anything, are just kind of expected at this point. Um, They're surprisingly flippant about it and they kind of like kiss in front of their house and stuff, which would be potentially problematic. and then Dina goes back to her room and like, you know, she's turned on. So she's touching herself. I guess, I guess, you know, they got to have a little bit of, a little bit of sex here in the fear street movies. Cause that was kind of their thing. Um, I guess, I guess, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I mean it just all of them kind of flat for me. I just, I don't know. Yeah. This just is even the, even the, the sexually charged parts just feel kind of cheesy and cringy. I don't know. I've been trying to figure out exactly what it is. I mean, it's not that the camera work in any of these has been especially memorable or interesting, but maybe it's the setting here. I don't know exactly, but everything in this section of the film just feels very slow and very flat. You know, there's just not a lot happening. And and I don't know if it's just because the sets aren't that visually interesting. Well, I mean, it's again, it's buying whatever. into the idea that the olden times were as as brown as a sepia photograph, and that's sure. just not accurate. <laughs> it's not true. Like the world wasn't black and white at one time, and then suddenly burst but into it color. Was. <laughs> it was. It was black and white until the seventies. We know this to be true. I mean, that's just that's a, a, a an issue that tons of movies have when they try to do any kind of you know setting like this and they're really not giving it any kind of you know it's, it's historical care i guess um sure I'm, i mean this place i'm sure they built this i'm sure they had the budget to actually build this town but every time i look at it every time i see it like in a wide shot it feels like they just went and found something in Massachusetts, you know, like colonial Williamsburg, you know, like they just went and found this and shot there for a couple of days. Like it feels that way. It feels like a a historical reenactment rather than, than, you know, something trying to capture real history. And I'm sure our standards are way too high. I'm sure we shouldn't care about it, but honestly, this movie is, uh, is trying to ape something like the witch, which even though it had, you know, a lot of sepia and, gray tones and was very dark and very dour it did not feel like this and and definitely sort of grabbed my attention more than than this did 
Mm. Um, it, but there's there are a lot of things working to disconnect me from this drama, right? The the actors who again are they're doing fine. You know, I, I want to pat them on the back and be like, "Look at you! Look how hard you're training! You know, good job! You know, this is this is really mean. This is really mean. But this." Oh god, the costumes of this movie and then the fact that everyone's doing terrible accents. It reminds me of like an episode of Wishbone. <laughs> the ghost missing Story is, Master. is the dog is the dog in a costume? Like Ah <laughs> uh, yes, their production quality has reached wishbone levels. <laughs> yeah, I don't it. know why that's what that's what I think of, but I mean, yeah, it, it feels like uh, my kids used to watch like Dino Dan all the time and, you know, Dino Dan does dinosaur stuff, but it's the same thing where it's like the production value just hits a peak and it's like, well, they're never going to be able to do any, any better than this. Like, it's just not going to happen. Yeah. And, and this is kind of at that point yeah. where they don't have the time, they don't have the budget, they don't have the resources. And honestly, this, the other piece of this that annoys me and it, and it shouldn't. But it's like this, this backstory, and that's all this is, is backstory. You could tell all of these events in like 20 minutes. Tops. Yeah. Tops. Right? Like you can shorten all of these scenes. You can remove most of what happens because here's, here's everything you're going to get out of the 1666 segment of this. Seraphir wasn't a witch. She was a fine girl who happened to like other girls. Who got caught by a bunch of asshole men. Those asshole men had mystic powers. <laughs> and they used those mystic powers to abuse her and rob her of her life. Right? Which sucks. It's shit and it's garbage and it shouldn't have happened. But that is it. Like, that is the extent of, of this backstory. That's all. Maybe there's some nuance. Maybe. But... It feels like when they assembled this and they structured this script, it felt like this was going to be like an inhale, like, like building all this tension, tension, tension. We're going to see all the characters we've seen before. We're going to see them in this new context. We're going to get, you know, the characters who have died, like the, you know, the, the kid from the first one who gets killed. We're going to see him again. Oh, isn't that nice? Oh, Kate, who got her head cut apart in a bread machine. We're going to see her again. Oh, isn't that nice? Like, it feels like them going like, Hey, here's all the, you know, we're just going to give you this little moment to just be like, oh, cool, 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 cool. And then we're actually going to like go back to the things that matter. And in a three part, six hour movie, I know we're not asking for brevity here. We're not asking for specificity in our scenes, but this still feels like too much backstory time. It's just too much. We don't need it to, to tell this story. And the movie, I think, as you've said, you're not connecting with any of the characters. And I think the movie is just went ahead and made the assumption that if you're if you've watched this far, that you really care about what's happening here. No. And and just kind of gives up on trying to earn it. <laughs> like, um, it's like not, not concerned with trying to keep your attention anymore. Everything's fine. Sometimes I feel like this movie wants me to hate everyone in it. Like, I feel like it's working against me. Yeah, um, there's a lot of owner, onerous people in this, this section, uh, by design, I'm sure. But the, 
the film wants to sort of show also, I guess that, you know, again, I guess it is trying to justify what shady side is like, it's this poisoned place. And so it's trying to demonstrate that the land is being poisoned. And some of those scenes are okay. You know, the pig goes bad and eats its young. So they have to kill the pig. That scene was fine. I liked that scene. It was good. Um, you know, lots of, uh, you know, pig eating pig guts kind of thing. Um, you know, the apples turn bad, the flowers or the, the bread mixture starts to go because the yeast isn't working, you know, like that kind of stuff. It's, it's, it's interesting, but there's also this undercurrent, like, um, Dina's dad, when, when he's complaining about her or Sarah's dad, I guess. When he's complaining about her, says that her mother wanted to settle there because she recognized that it was a good land. Right? It was a good place where they could find their own Eden. And then of, of course that didn't work. So there's this this weird undercurrent where it also feels like the movie is trying to to sort of build up this town as special, right? It was special before they arrived. And and then, you know, they turned it both evil and good by their actions and a lot of that stuff just doesn't i don't know it just doesn't really land and again i don't i wonder if it's important like do we have to have this it is also uh, and again i think this is being determined because of dina's you know perception of the actions it's also very diverse you know uh, so they couldn't really do the crucible tituba thing uh, because there are lots and lots of people of color, uh, including, you know, presumably Sarah, who were shown looks very similar to Dina. Um, I don't know. There's just a lot of there's a lot of weird choices being made. And it all kind of culminates in the eyeless priest scene, um, which is our first real sort of horror scene of this little little segment. Maybe. And it was good. It was it. Yeah. It was effectively horrific. I mean, eyeless stuff always weirds me out because of Event Horizon. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Paul W.S. Anderson yep. making your 64th appearance on this podcast. Yep, there you go. <laughs> um, because uh, what we see in this part is the first, you know, shady side killer, I guess. Yeah. Um, the, the first one who was, was pulled in. And it's uh, the minister. And so he pulls all the children into the church and then cuts out his own eyes and all of theirs. And it was, it was good. That was a solid scene, fairly well executed, you know, decently horrific, good prosthetics. Um, so I don't want to bag on that particular scene. And again, that's kind of where I'm at with this whole series, man. It's like, most of it is just like, meh. And then there'll be a little like, Oh, you know, it's like that meme with the girl where she's like, Ugh. and then, Oh, like that's that's kind of this whole this whole series is like there's yeah. just little moments that are enough for me to go like okay oh, all right yeah not not bad um I, I guess the real thing that gets revealed in this section though is that the good family is actually behind everything right we've been seeing a cloaked and hooded figure you know casting these spells carving these names into the rock with magic whatever you want to call it throughout the series and now we find out who that is and it is actually the good family um, who steals a book of spells i guess from the witch um and and then uses them successfully I suppose to summon the devil and then strike a bargain that 
they will cast a spell, a name will be chosen, that name will, you know, harvest souls by killing as many people as possible, and then the devil will reap those souls. And the good family, or whoever does the casting, I guess, will benefit. They'll have prosperity. Right? That's the devil's bargain. And you know what? Sure. Okay. Okay. Um, I still feel like the movie is fast and loose with the mechanics of how it works. Because there are times, especially because the movie doesn't just explain this in this film once. It does it three times. When we actually see it happen, then Dina wakes up and explains it to her brother. And then she kind of half explains it again to another character later. Just so you know. <laughs> it wasn't clear that the good family's evil. Let's, we'll, you know, let's, we'll make sure you know by the end. Um, but the twist here is that good actually wanted, the, the good of the 1666 time period actually wanted to marry Sarah. He wanted to take her as a wife because his wife died. Something, I think, like she got sick. I think that was what happened, like his wife and kid. And, and so he was going to take Sarah as a, a wife in an attempt to you know sort of rebuild his family. And then he was the one in the woods who saw Sarah and the girl, the preacher's daughter, together. Right. And so to ruin that relationship, after he set up his bargain with the devil, he named Cyrus Miller, the, the priest or the, the preacher, as the, the first killer. But... How often this has to happen, Dina says later that it's like every generation, you know, father, son, you know, down the line, they have to call forth a killer. But there are a lot of names on that, uh, yeah, on that wall. And, and if the timeline is, is worked out, then Nick Good, you know, the sheriff of the 1994 version, he both summoned forth the killer at, Nightwing, and then also the skeleton killer. Yeah, there aren't at enough the beginning people of in the family. Yeah, and and he seemingly doesn't have any kids of his own, because um, we see, I guess, what's supposed to be his house at the end of the film, and it's it's devoid of like children stuff. It's just him. Um, so maybe that's and what he was wishing for. Maybe that's why he summoned the. This would have been Skull such an killer. easy thing you know? to to see to in the script. Like it, it would have been really <laughs> easy to check this and and make sure that that made sense, and they didn't. Uh, yeah. I, again, I, maybe there was a break there. Maybe there was something else they were going to talk about. But um, I did kind of like that they sort of build him as the hero of the sixteen sixty six version. He's the one that charges into the church first to investigate. Um, you know, but then he he becomes you know, the villain. Which is kind of the setup for his character in the, the entire you know, series, but basically after the the preacher murders all of all of the children, then you know the townspeople demand blood in typical insane pilgrim fashion, and uh, everything gets laid on Sarah. Uh, fear, right? Everybody, everything comes to her because you know she likes the girls, and because she likes the girls, she must be you know, the devil. And ultimately, it's it's good who confirms this once he realizes that she's not going to uh, to marry him or whatever. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the preacher scene is definitely the highlight of this entire segment, in my opinion. I, I don't think anything really tops that. It's, it's, it's really good. It's nicely done. Um, I don't know if it's worth watching for that alone, but you know, if, if people um, not having eyes, considering the, the whole, you know, people sitting up in the church and being eyeless or not eyeless or various states of deadness. Um, I've seen that before. You know, to be fair, I've seen that in a lot of movies and a lot of TV shows. I actually just played an indie horror game that had that exact setup in it. Mm -hmm. Um, People like that. Which kind of alarmed me because even the church looked similar. So I was like, wow, this, huh, that really is a thing. Because it felt very familiar. I thought of this movie. I guess that's one point in its favor you did get me to think of you movie (laughs) you made me think of you again well done um yeah i mean it's it's fine like i said it's it's good uh i guess the last you know piece of it is really you know sort of at the end when sarah because sarah discovers what good is done at the end she's the first one to sort of find the mystical cave with the rocks and the flames and the the pointy hats you know the whatever and and that good is the one. And, and he, even then he tries to convince her to like, just, you know, be with him and, and everything will be fine. And I will say the other kind of gruesome piece in this is when she gets her hand cut off, she's fighting him off. He stabs her through the wrist and, and then she kind of like breaks her hand away and, and rips, rips her hand off. So that the justification of that, you know, is, is kind of interesting. And then of course the, the sequence ends with uh, the cursing scene where she you know, curses the town, but the curse is really more. I'll always, I guess I'll, she says, I'll always remind you of what you are. Like, I'm never going to let you forget, you know, that this was all built with evil. And so I, I guess that's that part of the curse is kind of interesting. Um, because, you know, that's kind of what shady side is for the Sunnyvalers, right? They're like the shadow they can't get rid of. And Seraphir is, is that. So that's, I mean, that's a nice parallel. I don't think it has anything to do with his movie. That very much feels more like something that R.L. Stein kind of came up with and him, you know, building out this world, but it's, it's interesting here. And, uh, you know, interesting enough, but the promise that the, the truth will come out is where, you know, the 1666 portion ends. And again, it's only 50 minutes of the movie. Like, it's not much. Um, I guess the, her friends do her a solid by um, moving her body and burying it, you know, somewhere that's not like a pauper's grave. And, uh, you know, that, that becomes, I guess, kind of important for later. But uh, then we, we get the film's real twist, the one that if you were just kind of paying attention to the initial marketing, which was saying, oh, each film is going to focus on a different time period, you, you might not have seen coming, even though I think the structure of these makes it pretty clear what they're going to have to do. Uh, and that is that we jump sort of mid-film at almost the halfway mark exactly into Fear Street 1994 Part 2 felt clumsy <laughs> it's i i remember sitting there watching it and being like oh that's cute yeah it's, it's cute i mean i i wasn't impressed by it i wasn't shocked by it 
because obviously we have to come back to the present, right? We've established that it's, it's Dina and her friends that are navigating us through this world. And it's the present day that matters, quote unquote, everything else we've been seeing is all flashback. So it, it, I knew we were going to come back. I, I will, I guess I will give the film. I didn't expect us to come back for an hour, right? I thought it would be like a 20 minute, you know, basically you're a 25 minute, like tail to your act three to wrap up the modern day stuff. Cause once it's known, Oh, the goods were behind it all from the beginning. The, the wrap up part becomes fairly clear. Like how do we stop this? Will you stop him? Uh, which is exactly what happens, but this film is going to take another hour to, <laughs> to get us to that point. Um, but we flash forward to fear street, 1994 part two, uh, audible scream. And then really we're off to the races uh, because Dina is out in the woods. That's where she's rejoining the hand with the body and having this vision. So Josh is just kind of up on the road with their car and who comes, comes up, but uh, officer good, right? Good man. Good. Goody. Good. As they say, shows up to uh, figure out what's going on. So he seems to have, and that's another piece of this that I was kind of surprised by is like, I, does he have some kind of window or insight into like what everybody in the town is doing because of this curse? Like how exactly there's so much magic that's unexplained in this. There's a lot of coincidence in all of these movies, but definitely in this one. And, and again, there's, there's old screenwriting rules about how much coincidence your audience is going to be willing to take. And we're, we're really buffeting up against that now, like pretty hard. So, you know, good knows that they're on to him somehow. Like, I guess just their presence in this area is enough to let him know that they're, you know, chasing down the Sarah fear side of things. Um, but I, I, I don't know. The, but what the film is very obviously desperate to build towards is a slasher showdown. Like they've introduced all these slasher characters that are, homages and riffs on all of these other famous slasher characters. And we've really only seen them in snippets, right? The one who got the most screen time by far was Tommy, uh, the Nightwing killer in uh, 78. So we have to see the other ones, right? We've only seen them in little like cutaways and things like that. So we've got to see them, you know, in action. And, and it's obvious that the movie's wanting to build towards that. And you mentioned that this, this section or this movie isn't much fun. And this is my biggest disappointment with this movie is that I wanted from this moment on, because at this moment on, we know all the story we need to know. The characters are brought up to speed. Nothing is hidden. Everything's understood. I was expecting this to be the last couple minutes of Scream. That's really what I thought they were going to go for, right? Because once Nev Campbell knows who the killers are, like she, I'm not going to say she's in control at the end of Scream, but as the audience, you feel like she's in control, and, and the, that makes the, that section of the film the chase. fun. You're not learning anything new; you're just a, you're witnessing the chase, right? And and this film tries to do that, and just doesn't get there. And and I've I'm hoping as we discuss, maybe we can sort of iron out why. Um, yeah, I mean, I have some <laughs> thoughts about why and and one of them is really simple i just think there are too many characters 
Sure. Yeah. There's too um, many people and, and nobody's in peril. Too much shit going on. You know, the thing about the thing about Stranger Things, uh, which is that cute kid success that we all want to replicate in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I know Netflix would like to replicate it just endlessly oh, yeah. if they could, Please. if they could just mm-hmm. make a factory that pumps out Stranger Things clones. Um, Weirder things. But, yep. things. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the thing about that is that it was a TV show and it was able to have an ensemble cast because you can dedicate entire episodes to developing those characters. So when you need them all to do different things and maybe need some of them to disappear for a while, that's all within the constraints of a television show where they can do that. In a movie, when you have characters that are just standing around doing nothing, it's so glaringly obvious. That's a problem. For sure. And this was a big problem in, in this last stretch of the film. It's just people standing around with nothing to do. The other thing this movie does pretty much right away after they get back to the 1994 segment, because we bring Jillian Jacobs character, Ziggy from 78, uh, but all grown up back into the mix, right? She becomes a, an integral part of the team, even though we've been shown that she's an agoraphobic shut in over and over again. Now, because of everything going on, she's just with leaving the house yeah just fine whatever but the thing that really bothered me and we talked about this a little bit last time that ziggy should probably be the main character of this yes at the very least she should be our bookend she should be how we came into the world and she should be how we leave it after having her experience navigating dina and her friends through this this experience and and I get more evidence of the fact that maybe at one time in the script development phase, she was a larger character because she gets the emotional beats of this of, of this film, this you know, part three. Because she is reconciling the fact that Nick Good, who she thought was a friend, you know, a like-minded individual, who may, and he may have been at one time is actually the guy that's behind all this. And so there are multiple moments, like large moments in this film where she is having these revelations of the fact that everything that Nick Good said to her was, you know, evidence, I guess, that he was the one behind it, but she just never put the pieces together. Like you said, I've let a lot of people die tonight, but not you, right? Oh, well, that's because he actually like created the killer. Um, so there's just she gets all this emotional heft for a character that we've spent literally zero time with. I mean, she's had less than 10 minutes of screen time. And yet she's the one that gets like the big emotional beats of this section of the film. And it's just, it's kind of nonsensical. Um, Like, yes, do we care that she's growing as a person, I guess? Sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, But yeah, I I don't know. It doesn't work for me. And it, it just makes me want more of that. Because Jillian Jacobs is good, and that's a compelling uh, idea and compelling story. But, you know, the film really tries to, to give us lots and lots of touchbacks to the films we've seen already. Josh has, keeps having visions of Kate with her head in the bread machine. Um, you know, Jillian Jacobs keeps flashing back to scenes with her sister because now she realizes that her sister was killed by Nick Good, so she wants revenge. I, I don't know. There's just, there's, the film's really kind of haphazardly trying to make me feel things. And it's not successful, not, not especially good at it. Um, I mean, I, I like a horror film that has dramatic and emotional weight. 
that's good. But this is just trying to do so with inserts and cutaways. It's not well earned. To things we've already seen. And and for relationships, yeah, that I, I just don't care about that much. So the plan, right? And and the last 40 minutes of this movie is the plan is is to go back to the mall. They know that the monsters are lured by blood, blood of the people who have been cursed, I guess. Um, I don't know. Uh, but apparently Dina's blood is what they're hunting. They want Dina. Nothing in, of the original, uh, nothing of the other killers seemed focused on the fact that they were hunting a particular person's blood. They were just hunting, right? When they were summoned into existence, they just killed just relentlessly because that's the devil's bargain. But now, apparently, either by the express instruction of good or just by the nature of this weird heart in the middle of the woods <laughs> or underneath the mall now, I guess. <laughs> um, <laughs> the telltale the, heart of the mall. <laughs> the telltale heart at the center of the mall. Uh, now it wants Dina, and it's, it's, it wants her blood. Uh, much like it wanted Sam's blood at the beginning. Or something. Uh, something. Blood, blood, something, something. Plot device. And so they they make Dina cut herself and pour it into a bucket and then they dilute it with water and put the bloody water into super soakers and then like soak them all. And then turn on a bunch of black lights, apparently. And <laughs> like also that could be cool if we had, I don't know, some kind of lead up for it. But it just feels mm -hmm. like a very sudden sort of pointless choice that they just make. I don't know where they get this idea. I don't know what inspires it. I, I don't know. Spencer's Gifts, baby. I mean, this hanging out in the back of that Spencer's Gifts with all the uh, personal massagers. You know, and I don't even feel like it does, like the weed, the it does weed the montaging very well because you no. don't you don't ever really get to enjoy that stuff. And this this kind of felt like it needed a bit more of a montage. Like I said, no fun. Yeah, I mean, this is the point where you want the fun montage of them like prepping them all and like. You know, almost almost a team style where it's like a bunch of whip pans and zooms and like coming in on people giving thumbs up and like blood spattering against the wall. And then somebody turn around being like, yeah, you know, like that's this is almost the point because they've reached that level of ridiculousness. Right. Like this is ridiculous. And even within the mythology of their own story, it kind of doesn't make sense. So it's like you but you lean hard into it. Right. Like it's it's Star Trek four. Right. Space whales are going to communicate with an alien species. This is dumb. It's a stupid idea, but we're just going to lean into it, boys. We're going to shatter ourselves into this thing and we're not looking back. And it works. You're just like, yep, the space whales will save us. Mm -hmm. Go. Mm -hmm. And it's fine because if you get that buy in from your audience, you can kind of go anywhere, especially in a movie like this and they just don't get there um we do get another character reintroduced from fear street part one be the sort of i mean i, I they sort of 
sort of paint him initially as a hoodlum, but he's being abused by the police. Like he's basically being accused of crimes he didn't commit. There may have been crimes he did, but that, those are the ones he was caught for. And, you know, so this whole thing, kind of police commentary, that character is brought back because he is also the janitor at the mall so he can get them in, you know, et cetera. So, I mean, it, you know, somebody who is arranging the pieces of this to have all of them in place to justify, you know, how all this will work. They thought through some stuff, right? It's not like they just kind of went like, oh, but it's it's overwhelming and and there are too many people involved, right? So we've got Sam who's still possessed, right? Because she's now a shady side killer, right? Her name is on the wall. So she's trying to murder, but she hasn't been killed yet. I guess that's the key. She's still a living person. She's still a living person who's just been possessed. They didn't they didn't murder her though. But all of the other shady side killers are long dead and have been reanimated by the telltale heart in the basement of the mall. And so they're all coming for him, uh, coming for Dina specifically. So they've got their super soakers full of blood. They've got their plan. Dina gives a great emotional, you know, like rah rah speech. We're going to show them that shady side matters and whatever. You know, like, okay. Uh, you know, do you have time to stand in the middle of the mall and have this conversation? I don't know if you do, but uh, it's supposed to be that rallying cry that says, like, think of all the people we've lost, you know, all the and we get this even like visual montage of all the characters who've been killed just so that we can remember that we're supposed to care about all the characters who've been killed. And we still um, don't. Still don't. Still doesn't work. Uh, and then all right, I, this is a, just a beef of mine, and we've seen it a bunch of times in this. I'm so tired of the character cutting their hand to let mm -hmm. blood. It's such a stupid thing. Why would you cut the palm of your hand? You need that. Like, you need it. And if you only it's need, like, a drop of blood, thing. you know, you don't need to slash your entire hand. It's... It's just, it's a dumb place to cut yourself if you need blood and it's going to do more damage and it's not going to help you like accomplish other important tasks. It's just stupid. So, um, the film has been deliciously void of needle drops up until this point because, you know, it was 1666. <laughs> Drop a 1666 hit. <laughs> even in the soundtrack of 1666, I felt like there was somebody who wanted to do like a pilgrim style needle drop. Like there were a couple little hints in the score as like, Oh, you, you had an idea there, didn't you? You were going to do exit music from a film, but with pilgrim music, weren't you? Ugh. You were, don't lie. Ugh. Don't lie. Lee Janiac. I know you were. Terrible. <clears throat> um, but they, they don't fortunately, but now the needle drops come fast and furious. Oh my goodness. Uh, we get uh, come out and play while we get the you know set up the mall montage and and you know they hang the black lights which is totally not enough black lights to render that place as black as <laughs> black lighted as it is but whatever um and then they they shoot blood everywhere um and paint to you know i don't know make fun of people and stuff it's i don't really strange. understand why they took the time to put messages all over everything yeah, I mean, they, they establish that it's Nick Good who has been writing the, you know, red paint messages all over town that remind everybody of the of the the, the curse. Right. Which seems counterproductive. Um, 
because like it would be better if nobody remembered Seraphir for him. But I guess the curse benefits his killing spree and keeping that going. I, I, I don't know. Again, this is very, very loose storytelling justifications, motivations. They thought about them, but not super deeply. Um, but so they're they're prepped, waiting for the killers to come to lure them in, and they get interrupted by the cops. The cops get murdered, of course, because the body count needs to go up. This has been a very low body count film at this point, and the series has established that you know we need we need people getting murdered, a bunch of them, and and so we we sort of segue very cleanly back into to that with uh, the Michael Myers killer. I think this is what they call him the ice cream killer, something like that. He was like an ice cream guy. A man selling malted milkshakes <laughs> on a store, but he's a little bit weird. Yeah, that kind of thing. Um, and we get, you know, some stabbings and, and some stuff. Uh, I, I don't know. It's what did you think of this? This whole this whole sequence, right? This is the climax of these movies, right? You've been watching five and a half hours of film to get to this moment. What did you think? It was just very messy. It was messily filmed. Uh, the script was very disorganized. It just felt like a, like it wanted to be this great big set piece. I got, I kept getting the the feeling that they wanted to have this mall be this massive set piece where so much happens. And, in order to do that, you have to make it a little bit more distinct. And it would have needed a bit more time in the movie to kind of sit with people. Like, I, I don't know. I feel like coming back to this mall, it was supposed to be this really big, you know, bombastic thing. And it just wasn't. Um, so it kind of fizzled out for me. I liked all of the, you know, crazy lighting, I guess. I that can be fun. Um, mm -hmm. It was a little bit over long to be lit so garishly. You know, that's rough on the eyes after a while. Um, yes, but we did get a CK1 joke. So mm -hmm. don't and forget And what would we that. do without that? Very, do you remember CK1? I do. I remember you smelled like that. I, I used it, man. Time. I enjoyed CK1. Which means our bathroom smelled like that the ladies. all the time. Um, some horrible scent. Um, but no, I, but I mean, the, <laughs> I guess the thing I, I really, it made me just wish the film had been structured differently. Like this whole climax, I feel like it would have played better and it would have been so much better if these movies had been rearranged, not necessarily rewritten, but rearranged. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, this just, it, it didn't work for me. I don't know. It was one of those, um, like, I see what you tried to do. Yes, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of the, okay, I, I get what you're going for, movie. Like, I understand where you're headed with this. And I, I don't necessarily disagree, but it's it's problematic. Because their their plan, if, if we can call it that, is to use the security gates of the various mall stores to um, trap the the killers it's a very they... it's a very goonies kind of home alone mm -hmm. kind of zany thing to do it yes, seemed a little zany for me it's very kevin McAllister. 
to the point that I was like, okay, if we're going to go this far, then I want to see some motherfuckers getting hit on the head with paint cans. Yeah, I, I want to see, see some some horror slipping on micro machines. machines, you know? Right. I want to see a motherfucker go down on micro machines. I want to see somebody yeah. step on Lego and go like, ow, you know, like. And, and like, I mean, considering the time period that we're dealing with, they could have done a lot of really funny references to those types of movies because those had hit it pretty big. I mean, yeah, Home like Alone empowerment had already been out and, you know, it, but it feels like this purposely avoids those tropes because it wants to to lean a bit more adult. Yes. And instead, it's just joyless. And if there's yeah. one thing that I don't want to be reminded of in my adulthood, it's that adulthood is joyless. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. No, I mean, and that is my, as I was really trying to assemble my thoughts on this, this film, that's the thing that just keeps coming back to me is just, it's a young adult series with young adult leanings and young adult proclivities that has been shoved into an R-rated mold. Yeah. And it just doesn't fully fit. I wish that it would have either gone full adult, full hardcore, absolutely unbelievable R-rated, not just gore, but like tone, story, content, whatever. Or they would have dialed back the gore and made this more YA and I could like watch it with my kids. I, for like, me, I would have done, I would have probably done the latter. Same. I think it would work better because this is a YA story. It's not complicated enough to justify all this, all these histrionics. And, right? and to be fair, R.L. Stein was writing these books at a time when um, Judy Bloom books were controversial. Mm-hmm. So I mean, we just have to to like recontextualize what those books were, and the content in them is not going to be shocking to audiences now. So it means that you could take that same content and tailor it for a slightly younger crowd, because a slightly younger crowd is what would those books would be more appropriate for now anyway. And like, that's, Mm -hmm. I know that's kind of horrific to say and to think about, like kids just aren't kids as long as they used to be, but it's more or less like just the, the types of things that, that young people are into. It's just different. Yeah, I agree completely. I, I would have almost rather this series been this love letter to these adult slashers. But in but done in such a way that I could share them with you know my young adult daughter, right? And, ha- and as an entry point to hey, let me show you the horror genre, but in this kind of fun, you know, slightly intense, right? Some some serious stakes, some real things going on, but at the same time, there's this there's this openness here where you can engage. And then when we do eventually watch Halloween or whatever, I can be like, hey, remember Fear Street? This is what it was aping, right? Like that's this that feels like this would have been a perfect one of those but because they're trying to push into the adult horror side of things and make it serious which is fine I, i'm okay with that choice this film just feels sort of tonally it's two different tones being smashed together and more often than not they go the dark tone route when light tone actually would have been a better choice yeah and 
it, you know, it, it's fine. I think Janiac, based on this, I'm actually excited to see what Janiac does next. Because that will tell me really sort of where her proclivities as a horror director lie. And, and that could potentially be very interesting. Um, but I don't know. It's, it's really hard to, to say. Um, but I guess the, you know, to just lay out the rest of the plan, ultimately their goal was to get Nick into the mall, dump the blood on him so that then the monsters would chase him while they retreated to the relative safety of the, you know, the, the mall store cages or whatever, but that backfires and, and Nick gets away, they get separated and Dina eventually has to like cut her hand again <laughs> her other hand i guess and they don't and, bandage and, their hands what are they doing like they must have had, super clotting power she had one on for a little bit but then they kind of forget about like showing us that that matters <clears throat> maybe she bled through down, it you know <laughs> maybe you know we can only hope but we go back down into the uh <laughs> the caves and the tunnels as seen in camp nightwing dina's down there with a headlamp and I, I like this scene, you know, making caves scary is not especially challenging, but we get some flashbacks to her Sarah fear experience, you know, as Sarah was kind of navigating those caves herself and she's chasing down uh, good. Who's presumably running to his little area so that he can cast another spell or something. I don't know. doesn't matter. <laughs> Did you want her to be more aggressive as she's calling out for him, because I did, I wanted her to just like be insulting him and like I'm coming for you, motherfucker. And well, good's not so good anymore. You know, considering I just, I all of to- the the taunts that they had written on the wall and and how into the the home aloneiness of it they got, that's what I was expecting, and then didn't get. Yeah, I mean, I just I, again, I, I kept flashing back to Nev Campbell and scream. And, you know, how she's she's taunting them at the end. Lots of quips. You know, like it's because you're ostensibly, you know, I guess it's the old it's the old rule of boss fights in video games. The second to last boss is the one that you want to be really hard. And then the last boss is the one you just kind of walk over because you feel like such a badass. And I was really hoping that that's what this was going to be, is that Nick would be just a pushover. Like you take away his his little monsters that he can create and summon. And he's just a dude and he kind of sucks. And so I was really hoping that he would just basically roll over and just die super easily and, and have it be kind of a joke. But of course, you know, the movie goes a different way. I also hated that the film, the film sets up all these slashers and then it's obvious that it wants, it wants to have them. It wants to show them off. And it wants to show them in action. But obviously they can't be chasing after our main characters because they've been proven to be such a threat that our main characters would just die. So what do we get instead? We get a big monster showdown um, where they shoot them all with the blood and then they just kill each other. Yeah. Which Which renders the mousetrap game that they set up kind of pointless. A little bit. Um, again, I guess if their goal was to kill Nick with them, that's fine. But then that, that immediately didn't work. 
and yeah, and, and Nick doesn't seem like that much of a threat other than he's a cop and he has a gun. And and they it just doesn't seem like he's he was worth that kind of trouble. But here we are. But unfortunately, obviously there are more killers, right? We've been shown there are so many killers. So more killers just keep coming and they're out of their bloody super soaker water. And, you know, so now they have to actually fight with uh, like axes and stuff. And man, I don't know. The movie was already kind of losing steam. And at this point, it just, it almost dead stops. Well, like I was at one like, point, none of this matters. at um, one point it's cutting, it's doing the cut back and forth. You know, this is all happening in real time between mm-hmm. Dina getting strangled and all of the, the killers coming to life and, and everyone's just standing there. They're just standing there and watching the killers come back to life to stalk them some more and just run away. Why are you just <laughs> standing there? They don't even have to stay in the mall. <laughs> like you, leave, you know, like it's fine. Like you could just go. <laughs> you know, it's okay. Yeah. Um, I guess we're intercutting between Josh fighting Ruby lane and getting his guts just, cut open which a lot of the injuries sustained by the characters in this film um are just it's no (laughs) like no you're not going to get slashed across the stomach and then get up and have a knife fight with somebody that doesn't work not generally um you know uh, ziggy you know kind of finds one of the deputy's guns and she's just kind of like mowing people down for a minute which is nice it's a good uplifting moment for that character given that she's you know, struggled, I suppose. But the moment that killed it for me, the moment that I knew was coming and was desperate to not have come was when Dina and Sam are locked in mortal combat and Dina just goes, but it's me. And then Sam kind of stops for a second. (sighs) I mean, we've talked about the tropiness of this series, but I mean, this, that was the point where I just disengaged completely. I was like, oh, God. Oh, Lord. It was almost as bad as the line in the 1666 section where she, you know, after their their first you know, sort of lovemaking session, she's like, I was never alive before tonight. And I was like, oh, Jesus. Oh, my. <sighs> Some, somebody thought they were just writing a, just a Shakespearean drama here, weren't they? It was a lot. Um, yeah, it was, I, that, I laughed out loud. I was like, oh, are you serious? Uh, I mean, it's fine. It's, sure. Whatever. But, uh, it, this kind of stuff, like one of the things I liked about Fear Street part one was that Dina and Sam's relationship, you know, felt like a legitimate shitty high school relationship, right? Like that, there was one thing that kind of worked about it. And and now by this, by the time we get to this, it's just, it's a love for the ages, apparently. Like they're going to ride off on some kind of horse together into the, into the clouds. Mm. <laughs> like, and it's just, and, and then I remember that Sam has been a, a murderous fly covered hell beast for the last two movies. <laughs> and I'm like, how has your love deepened in this circumstance? I, I don't understand We've how her murderous been together intense. together for six whole months <laughs> <laughs> we have dated since 
first period third day okay like it's just i I don't know It, it it loses so much of that kind of like angsty credibility that I really enjoyed yeah. to start. And it just kind of goes to this traditional, again, very young adult, very like, we're going to be together forever because we knew each other for two weeks in seventh grade, right? Like it has that quality to it, but yet ensconced in this very adult story. And it's like, this isn't just, it's not how this stuff works, you know? But I, you know, whatever, but, you know, it allows her to toss Sam aside and hit her head on a rock or something. And she goes unconscious for a while <laughs> and is, is finally able to dispense with Nick Good, uh, just as her friends were about to encounter all of the monsters that would rip them limb from limb. Even though we've been told already many times that if they don't get in their way, they're not looking for them. And that if they don't get in their way, then they'll leave them alone. But apparently not anymore. Because the black heart at the center of the mall has deemed it so mysteriously. Uh, maybe it's rhythmic patterns. Mall MacGuffin. And if we could just, if we could interpret the Morse code that the heart is beating in, we would understand its instructions. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I, I, I really... I didn't understand it, but then we do get the standard, you kill one thing and then all of the other things immediately die as well. Um, which, again, the mechanics of this is very loose. Why, why is the killing of Nick Good the thing that ends the curse and not the destruction of the heart? And was he the last good? And is he the only good to do this? I we mean, know there's a mayor good. Yeah, can't they just pick another one? Yeah, I mean, and who is they? And who is they? (laughs) Who is Satan? Um, Who is Satan, Alex? Um, Yeah, it's just it's all very loose, but it's it's very much in the the sort of action in the the Independence Day. (laughs) We destroy the mothership, and that makes all the other ships blow up immediately. (gasps) It's like, does it? Is that how that works? Not sure. Don't you know that? who <laughs> told you that <laughs> were you for sure that that's what would happen um i got a copy of the script <laughs> it was right here on my desk the whole time uh so dina and and sam make their way out of the caves and find themselves in uh i guess this is supposed to be nick good's basement which is a lovely man cave like absolutely lovely um and there are goat heads everywhere, I guess, because Satan. So, like, he has his goat heads on the wall everywhere. I mean, um, it looks sick, man. <laughs> so sick. I mean, there's just, awesome. goats, there's just goats everywhere in the man's house, which just seems like an odd choice. Maybe that's why he hasn't been able to produce an heir. Because the women come over and they go like, what's up with all these goats? And he's like, I just love goats. Like, billy goats. Mountain goats. Bit of a collector. <laughs> I'm a goat man. Um, uh, and then we get like a little family tree. Uh, I, I did kind of love that the moment that the curse is broken and Sunnyvale isn't like awesome anymore, that things just immediately turn to shit. Yeah. I mean, that was, <laughs> like, that was good. 
But like again, the guy backs out of his Jaguar and just gets nailed by a trash truck immediately. But again, what I was missing in the other in the other films oh. that I think would have made that a little bit sweeter is that that clear depiction of of shady side versus Sunnydale. Mm-hmm. You know that look yeah. that we never really got. You know, establishing shots, um, background stuff. Uh, we didn't get any of that stuff. So when that happened, it was like, ah, uh, that would have been really funny if they had, you know, set it up right. If we had seen that character before being a dick to the Sunnyvale or to the the, the Shady Siders, maybe at the vigil or whatever, or like cutting and someone off in traffic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you know, just a really simple setup and payoff. But he gets away with it or doesn't get a ticket, and then all of a sudden, like, bam, his car just gets totaled. Um. And then, uh, and then it's just back to back needle drops. You can tell that this, the music editor was like, when am I getting, when am I getting, when am I going in coach? Put me in coach. They just gave them a list of like <laughs> songs they had licensed and not used yet. And they're like, you have to work these in somewhere in the last, I don't know, five minutes. Can you do that? Right. You've got five minutes. You got to work in these 12 songs. Go. And he's like, I got this. Right. He's like, just a guy getting off the bench at a basketball game. He's like, I'm in. Um, so we get what Oasis, um, we get, uh, I don't even know, man, just a bunch of them all at once. Uh, we do see that Dina and Josh do have a dad. Again, this makes me wonder if there was a dad in previous cuts of the 94 section. Uh, he leaves them a post-it note by their keys that says like, don't cook. I'll be home later. Got a job interview, something, yeah, something, whatever. But like, you know, there's hope for Dina and Josh's family, but you know, their father is doing stuff and their house looks totally different. Like everything's bright, sunny, clean. It's very strange. Uh, again, I, I know they're trying to communicate visually that this, the shady side curse has you know, been broken, I guess, or at least not as bad as it was. Like the town still seems kind of jacked up. Doesn't seem like that's going to change, but you know, maybe it's not quite that bad, but fuck that. No one cares about that. Because what I want to talk about is what is he selling out of the back of his car in front of the school, the janitor guy? Do you remember? Do you remember this scene? This scene enraged mm. me immediately. And I don't like to get enraged at films, but oh, it dear. enraged me immediately. Oh, dear. It's because there's a scene of him at the mall where he's complaining about CDs. Man, these skip all the time. And like, oh, they, yeah. They, yeah. You know, like, okay. So at the end, what is he selling out of his car? Oh, God. It's an MP3 player. That's what he's selling out of the back of his car. It's like a homemade MP3 player with like a computer hard drive in it stuck in an 8-track machine. And he's trying to sell it to kids and be like, this won't skip. and It'll play all, it'll hold all your songs. And then this girl comes up and she says, you need an SSD, man. That's what's going to make this work. And then signs Josh's cast with her information. She's like, oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> Um, and it's the okay. girl that he's been chatting with. I, I think that's yeah, it is. Yes. It is. It's yes. the same nickname because she puts the name. It's whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So he's trying. So it's 1994, and he's come up with the MP3 player. Okay. All right. That's a little early, but sure. But then, okay. So somehow I just completely didn't make the the whole that it's skipping it's, all the time. I didn't. Because it's infuriating. This is so stupid. It's stupid. They put this in. I don't know why they put this in. I guess just so this guy would have like a moment at the end of this. 
Um, okay, so in 1994, an SSD, or, or what we would generally refer to now as flash memory, right? Like, you know, rewritable RAM chips. The okay. biggest that they had come up with was 20 megabytes, mm-hmm. and it cost $1,000. Um, this is the same issue that I had in the first movie with using a clear type chat window on a computer in yeah. 1994. That's just... that. That's not real. Yeah. I I just... Mm, this is like... I mean, maybe you would have had that flash memory to listen to your MIDI files. <laughs> maybe. Right. All of that MIDI music that you've got. Um, so what I think this is... All right. So we've had lots of opportunities to complain about an old person attempting to write dialogue for a young person. Right. Lots of examples of this. This uh, is, I hope to this do is like a person who is under 30 who is trying exactly. to write. Exactly. This is what happens when the inverse happens. When a person who's 23 and doesn't remember what the 90s actually were like is trying to write about the 90s and they just go to Wikipedia and they say, oh, did SSDs exist in 1994? And the Wikipedia says, yes. And they go like, ha ha, I'll put that in my movie as a funny joke for the olds. And then all they do is yeah. make me mad because that's not how it's just work. It's it's unnecessary. You know, I hate I hate the tee hee hee aspect of those kinds of references anyway. I hate it when movies do that. Um if you do that, you you have to be really clever about how you do it, and the only way to do it is back to the future. Mm. Just if you want a lesson on how to put, you know, Funny jokes about things that don't exist yet. That's there's your blueprint. <laughs> um, otherwise, just the pee pee poo poo joke. Otherwise, just don't don't bother. Um, you know, in general, I'm I'm willing to overlook a lot of a lot of technology that's bad, or you know, asking me to stretch my imagination one way or the other. But for this one, it just why was that in there? I mean, they put that in there. Why? Why? <laughs> Yeah. Why is that? I don't know. <laughs> Why did you Moment, write that I line? <laughs> I I don't know. Um but everything culminates with them going back out to the place where Seraphir's friends buried her body away from the hanging tree and they carve uh Seraphir the first shady cider into the rock as a, a sort of memorial to her. And then Dina and Sam, you know, get it on to uh, another 90s hit. Although a bit more obscure than most of the other 90s hits that we've heard. And, and, and we're done, you know, it's, you know, we, we crane up bird's eye view and, and the movie comes to its conclusion as they, they rock back and forth on a, a bed of red moss or something. Um, I don't, I just, I don't know what to, to think of the end. Uh, I mean, it just kind of stops. And at a certain point, a movie like this needs to, right? It's just, you just have to be done. Um, I think there's some nice emotional closure, a little bit at least. Um, we do get some interspersed scenes through the credits of, you know, life in Shadyside, you know, the mall again, which why anyone would ever be able to go to that mall again, I don't know. I mean, apparently it's just covered in blood. I mean, it was the site of several um, horrific murders. And many horrific murders. <laughs> like You know, usually when someone's murders. been horrifically murdered somewhere, they close that place down and they don't open it back up. <laughs> yeah. 
Because <laughs> like two sheriff's deputies got killed in there. Yeah. Uh, apparently Nick Good got killed, but whatever. It's the kind yeah. of thing people don't get over very easily. Like, do you remember Capitalism. when people got murdered here? Like, it just kind of poisons the mall experience. But I mean, I've got to go to B. Dalton's. I can't. Where else am I going to get my books? Oh, yeah. and that's the other. That was the other funny thing is uh, she had a a uh, bulletproof jacket of R.L. Stein books or Robert Warren's books that she wore as like a protection against uh, Nick Good. And yeah. LOL. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> the books saved her. Get it? Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. But then of course we zoom back through the mall, back through the tunnels and somebody has left the extremely important magical book laying on the ground and somebody takes it. So sequel baits. <sighs> yes. Uh, I don't know, man. Uh, this series is a real, it's a real head scratcher. It's a real shoulder shrugger for me. Um, I enjoyed them on the whole, right? If I'm looking at my meter and I'm saying like 50% is, is, you know, I didn't like this versus I did. It's slightly nudged over onto the, I did enjoy it side. There's, there's enough interesting stuff. Some okay performances. I really liked the second one quite a bit. You know, not a ton, but I, I did enjoy it. It felt like that one enge- that one provided more of the promise of what I thought these movies were going to be from the start. Right. The second one did. And so I think I'm nudged more on the side of like, yeah, that was okay. That was pretty good. But man, it's it's a real it's a real slog. It's a bit it's a it's a bit of a slog to get through this thing. Um and it it just much like with you know, the Fear Street 1666 section, it just left me asking the question, could this have been done shorter and in one movie? And the answer that I kept coming up to was yes, definitely. I don't know if that would have made it better, but it certainly would have made it more palatable, would have made it easier to get through this. Um, But I guess that's part of the question too is, this was obviously an experiment to see if we could do three films released very close together. I would have been interested to see how it happened in the theater. If that would have been successful. No, obviously here we're on Netflix where we'll never know if it was successful or not. But I will say that as part of the experience of watching these, I was excited to have one come out every week. Like every Friday I was a little like, Oh cool. There's a new fear street. It made it feel a bit more like a TV show or a mini series. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it felt it, it was it was fun to sort of get it dispensed in that way. And if it had paid off better, I think this would pretty this would be really high on my list of horror films. But that tonal inconsistency of YA versus adult. I don't know, a lot of it knocks it way back. So, I mean, as we, you know, we could probably like get to the wrap up phase here. We're kind of like you know, summing things up. But so. I know you have not been very bullish on these, but you know, let's let's sort of put our final thoughts together here. Surprisingly, I don't hate these movies. I don't like them. Um, I don't think I would ever want to watch them again. But you know, we've we've mm-hmm. arrived at that point, I think, on the first movie. <laughs> we said, Yeah, I don't think I'll ever want to watch this again. And then the second one, it didn't get any better. And then the third one, 
think it'd be better. Um, yeah. But for me, I I feel like this was too much movie. Um, this was not enough story for the amount of time that we were asked to spend with it. Mm. Yeah, I, I would I would agree wholeheartedly with that. I feel this like is... the 1666 plot, this should have been two movies. It should have started with 1978 and finished with 1994 with the 1666 stuff woven in. And maybe just as like a couple extended flashbacks. Yeah, where you know the bulk of the the setup and the good stuff happens with 1978 being a fairly competent movie, at least in its its idea, its con- its conceptualization. I think if that were made a little bit longer, if they spent a little bit more time fleshing out some ideas in that specific universe. And then introduced the 1994 characters toward the end and maybe started, I don't know, just I feel like there was, there's some different way to blend these tales together that involves getting rid of the whole something, something, part, something, 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 something. (laughs) Like, I feel like that kind of worked against the movies eventually. Yeah, I mean, it, it, there's just not enough story here to justify six hours of screen time, and, and as a result, we get a lot of we get a lot of re- repetition. We get a lot of just sort of like narrative dead stops as characters are you know talking about things or dealing with things. It it really just keeps them from coalescing in a really interesting way. So that that was another thing that kind of bothered me is like they don't really work as standalone projects. Like you can't really watch just one and be like, oh, well, that was satisfying because they're meant to lead right right into each other. And I don't think I would ever want to invest another six hours to watch them all again. So, like, how am I supposed to to consume these in the future? You know, like, it's sort of the Lord of the Rings conundrum, right? It's like, well, I I want to watch all of these, but I don't have that kind of time. But I still feel like I could, but I can watch those movies independently and still be satisfied in a session. And I don't think these movies work that well. Mm. And I mean, Lord of the Rings is a high bar to clear. It's unfair comparison, especially well for a bunch of reasons. But, you know, it's just the idea that if you're going to build a trilogy of films, they need to both work independently and fit together as a satisfying set of movies. And these don't really do that. They're too interconnected to do that um i think and maybe that was part of the marketing maybe i got that wrong you know when you pitch it and say this is the 94 this is the 78 this is the 1666 those sound like very independent projects that will be woven together by their content by the story itself they're going to put the pieces together for you but they don't really do that 1994 tells a little bit and then gives you a little bit of 78 and then 78 gets a bit of 94 and a little bit of 78 and a little bit if if this would have just dropped just, yeah. the the date names and gone with Fear Street Part One, Fear Street Part Two, and focused the whole thing on Britta, <laughs> and mm-hmm. and just had her, you know, maybe start with the introduction we got in the second movie with her, and have the the trilogy start there, and then we flash back to nineteen seventy eight, and then. 
simplify and and blend these stories and maybe not end up with so much empty space that just feels so misused. Yeah, I, I, I that's definitely where I'm at too. Um, you know, I like that there there are probably little things. Uh, I rewatched. Well, when Nef- when you finish one of these movies, Netflix immediately loads the first one again. I guess they program that. So that you can, you know, just continually enjoy the Fear Street films as you would. Um, so I rewatched the opening because I really, again, as we talked about with the first one, I really like the opening of Fear Street 94. Like the the B. Dalton opening with Ethan Hawke's daughter uh, is is really good because it's just screen and it's fine. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's good. And and there are a ton of things in that scene that pay off, well, don't pay off, but are referenced at the end, right? She works at the B. Dalton and she tries to close the gate. And the gate won't close all the way, which is a thing that happens in the last movie, you know, that Britta tries to close the gate and the gate won't close all the way. And it becomes a thing. Um, The using of the book to stop the stabbing, which is rough. You know, there's there's, you know, these were put together in this way and they obviously people decided, oh, we're going to put these little things in here because we want them to pay off. And when you film all these at once, you can do that kind of stuff. But the problem with it being six hours long is that when I was actually watching part three, I didn't remember any of that stuff. Like I, and maybe I would see them later or, you know, on a rewatch, I would pick up on it, I guess. But there's just, again, there's issues with this format. I, on the whole, I think it's a good experiment and I would like to see them try it again. Like I have a feeling we're going to get more of these. I really do. There were um, a lot I'd be of okay with that. <laughs> Yeah, there's just a lot of material that they can mine here. Um, you know, and they tried to I would love to, to see this adapted into a television show. I think sure. it would be a great Netflix original TV show. Mm-hmm. I just either like anthology style, you know, or something along those lines. I just yeah. don't think it's. I don't think it's really film quality. I know that's maybe a mean thing to say, but some things just don't play well to a film adaptation. They really don't. And maybe that's why I got shifted to Netflix in the first place. Maybe Warner Brothers looked at it and said, this is a lame duck. We put this in the theater. Nobody's going to go see this shit. You know, sell it to Netflix, get our money back. Pretend like it didn't happen. Maybe, maybe three years ago when people were going to the theater for fun. But mm. it's become... Remember those times? Yeah, it's become an event now. You know, we have to prep to go to the movie theater. And we're not just going to go and see anything. Um. And it, I mean, if you had all of the other movies to choose from, you wouldn't pick this. Yeah, there would have to be something to get you in. And uh, Stranger Things nostalgia, nostalgia for the nostalgia probably isn't going to do it right. Like, oh, I remember Stranger Things, which in and of itself is a piece of nostalgia. Um, I remember that this, that Stranger Things made me happy. And this reminds me of Stranger Things. So this must make me happy too. Yeah. <laughs> like that, we can only make those leaps so many times, I guess. And uh, yeah, I don't know. So I, I guess, you know, we can kind of you know put the cap finally on the Fear Street trilogy. I'm sure you're happy to see it go. <laughs> Thank you for being game and uh, going through this, uh, these, these shitty Netflix oh, no, I, with me. I genuinely like watching stuff like this because it's, I mean, I, I have such a heart for bad movies, um, mm-hmm. but I do like ripping on them. Yes, for sure. That is this is definitely part of the fun. Um, so as we wrap up, I think uh, we'll try and provide, you know, 
an overall concept. Because really, again, I don't think these are meant to be consumed individually. Um, that's not the way they were released. That's not the way they were presented to the world. Um, so as a whole, the, the Fear Street trilogy of films, um, where would you put it on the old failure piece of meter? Where are you, where are you feeling? Um... For all three movies, there was not enough that I liked about them to justify three movies. Mm. So it's like a 60. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm like right in the same boat. This is even a little bit lower for me. I'm going to put this like a 55, right? This is like just barely better than failing. Um, I really liked Britta. (laughs) I love it when she's in things and I just, you know. She was a bright spot. I liked the Sadie Sink girl. Um, and I liked some of the moments from 78. But yeah, I just ah, just didn't work. Um, Yeah, I mean. This is another one of those weird ones for me where. I sort of unreasonably like it, even though intellectually I know it's bad. Um. I've I've watched all of them a couple of times now, mostly like in prep for this, just going back and you know trying to. This is another one of those movies where I my my thoughts on it are not just like immediately crystallized. I've really had to chew on it, probably more than it deserves. But it has been a lot of me being like, okay, well, what about this? And I'm not sure about this. And so I'll go back and look at things again, and and it's it's really been a struggle because there are things about them that I genuinely do like. And elements of them that I think are genuinely executed well. Like I cannot speak highly enough of the gore effects. They're great. Um, yeah. I don't know who did them. I didn't research it. It's got to be one of the better crews in Hollywood, though. Like they definitely hired the right set of teams to build their prosthetics because they are truly exceptional in terms of horror. Um, horror prosthetics are not. I'm not going to say not difficult anymore because they definitely are, but they are even with modern like horror prosthetic technology it is super easy to screw that stuff up and it happens all the time mm-hmm. these look good across the board and they're consistently good um just the right amount of goo you know the blood looks good it's they're they're excellent um i wish that the the kills themselves were generally more interesting there's always a couple in every movie that are solid um but Again, if, if you're a person who can watch for that kind of stuff, who's just interested, you know, one of the old school, you know, like Friday the 13ers, who's just like, I just want to see a dude get his head cut off and have it look awesome, then go for it. Plenty of that here. You can enjoy yourself for hours. Um, but the story, just yeah. the payoffs are are weak womp at womp. best. Um. If you get into some of the characters, it may work for you. But why but would you? The movie is what kind of person are you that you? you would get into these characters? If you the like these characters, yeah. get in touch with me because I don't understand you and I want to. Yeah, they're they're just you know sort of bare bones high school shitheads, and and the movie doesn't really seem to care about doing much more with them. Um. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's it's really strange for a movie that is aping much much better films. It it does get some kudos for doing that aping with some exceptional skill. 
Um, but I can't really give it much more than that. Right. So this is a movie that if you aren't a horror fan, I don't, I think you would hate every moment of it. I I could be totally wrong there. Maybe a non-horror fan is the person who's perfect for this because they're not going to be constantly comparing it to existing horror properties that are better than it is. And so they're going to watch it and be like, yeah, but I don't know that person. And I have a very difficult time understanding who that person would be. So yeah, I'm, I'm dead middle down the road here. It's It's slightly better than not worth your time at all. But who knows? Uh, all right. So any other final thoughts on the Fear Street trilogy? I. <sighs> I really I I actually do want to see what they do with this property. Um, yes. I don't know if I will I, watch it like consistently, whatever it is, but I will check it out. Yeah, it has earned my knowing glance when something else comes down the pike. Eh? Oh, another one of those. eh? Yeah. I'll give that a shot. Um, yeah. yeah, it is certainly done enough to to justify that. Um, but I, there is a piece of me, and a, and as I've, I've you know sort of revisited and thought about the series, I've continually come back to it. I wish they'd just gone more young adult so that I could share this with my daughter because I think she'd really be into it, but she would not be able to handle the the R rated gore stuff yet and i wouldn't want her to like she's just not ready for that kind of thing um but but now it's in this weird middle place where it's like who is it for it's too immature for an adult and it's too adult for an immature <laughs> like so so who is this for 16 year olds who are you know between and the ages of six months to eight months like i don't know i just don't know anyone in that age group who who would enjoy this movie either I mean, maybe enjoy it, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't. That's that's my place, too, is I, I don't know who this movie's for. I don't know who's supposed to love it. Somebody obviously did. I mean, the movie, it, it, it got people's attention. So maybe it found that crowd. Maybe the people, maybe, if there's anything that's going to allow it to find its people, it's Netflix. Because um, there's just, you know, it's ubiquitous at this point for streaming movies and it, it had its day for sure. I mean, it pretty much dominated July uh, on Netflix's charts, which is all they really care about. So yeah, I'll, I'll see where it goes. See what we get next and hope for the best. Um, I don't know. I guess we'll find out. Yeah. This is just uh, such a big shrug. <laughs> just ending yeah, this with this, the biggest of shrugs. Just meh, a, meh, meh. Meh. You know, it's kind of like Jeepers Creepers three. It's like, eh, it's fine. It's got a thing in it. There's kids in a bus. Whatever. <laughs> you know, it's just, but it's not. It's not going to be the thing. It's not going to be Nightmare on Elm Street. Any of them. You know, it's it's not going to have that kind of lasting quality. Um, and that's a high bar to clear. I understand that you know, really good horror movies don't have to necessarily be that kind of you know legendary quality. But I mean, we're kind of due. For another, for a new horror franchise to make its mark, and uh, and this unfortunately is not it. Even though obvious care, time, and consideration was spent, you know. So yeah, we shall see what's coming next. All right. So if anybody wants to uh, find you on the old internet and yell at you about how great Fear Street is, how it's their favorite film, 
and how we have completely missed the mark by not just giving it a wholehearted recommendation from top to bottom. Where can we find you? Uh, you can find me at Baskinator on Twitter. Um, and I did read a little, a little bit of the Twitter discourse as these movies were coming out. And uh, yeah, feel free to, to talk to me about your feelings on this movie because I, I, <laughs> I saw a lot of positivity that I didn't expect once I watched yeah, it for no, myself. Yeah, people were pretty bullish on this by the time it came to the end. And, and I see why. Like, it's, it's pretty accessible. Um, but I just, I didn't have that reaction to it. Not really. Um, so in a similar fashion, if you uh, want to get in touch with me, you can get me at T Baskin on Twitter. If you want to get us together, we're at F peace theater on Twitter and failurepeace at gmail.com. Uh, so we will be back with discussions of more films, um, and films that maybe are worth your time, even though they don't necessarily hit those high watermarks of cinema success. Uh, all right, so we will see you then. Have a great week. See you next time. Bye-bye.